Hello everyone and welcome to Amapur. Here's what's coming up. We're close. We're close. We're not done yet. Benjamin Netanyahu pours cold water all over President Biden's hopes for a deal as Gaza faces famine and complete chaos. The head of Norway's main humanitarian agency, Jan Eglund, joins me from inside the war-ravaged enclave. Then... <laughs> How could this happen? Two years on, we remember the atrocities of Bucha. My report from there about the face of Russia's war on Ukraine. Plus... We've got five bodies frozen into a giant block of flesh. A murder mystery set in darkness and ice. My conversation with True Detective stars Jodie Foster and Kaylee Reese. Also ahead... Nothing gets Joe Biden more animated than being seen as the protector of, of democracy worldwide. Can Biden restore America's foreign policy? Politico's national security reporter tells Walter Isaacson about his new book, The Internationalists. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. Now, there appear to be major disagreements about the possibility of an agreement for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. After weeks of negotiations, President Biden says a deal to release Israeli hostages could be made by next Monday, which would also mean a humanitarian pause for Gaza. And speaking to talk show host Seth Meyers, he was optimistic for future diplomacy. There's a process underway that I think if we get that, that temporary ceasefire, we're going to be able to move in a direction where we can change the dynamic and not have a two-state solution immediately, but a process to get to a two-state solution. But the Israeli prime minister's office dashed any hopes for an early ceasefire. And key mediator Qatar says disagreements continue over, quote, numbers, ratios and troop movements, presumably referring to the number of hostages released for Palestinian prisoners and the withdrawal of Israeli soldiers from Gaza. The death toll there is fast approaching 30,000. And today, France and several Middle East nations airdropped aid into the territory, but the UN warns of a looming famine. The World Food Program says it suspended its aid deliveries amid, quote, a collapse of civil order. Jan Egland, who's head of the Norwegian Refugee Council, a major humanitarian organization, is in Gaza now for the first time since the October 7th Hamas slaughter of Israelis that has led to this fierce counteroffensive. And he joined me from Rafa. Jan Egland, welcome to the program from Rafa. Thank you very much. What is it like to be there and see it for the first time? We've heard a lot. We've seen pictures. We hear reports from inside. What are you seeing with your own eyes? Well, uh, Christiana, you have to come to Gaza to understand the devastation, the destitution and the desperation of the, of the people here. I have never in my many, many years as an aid worker seen a place that has been so bombarded for such a long time with such a trapped population without any escape. So people are traumatized beyond belief. They live under the most horrific conditions 
I was in the school today with uh, 50 people sleeping in a small classroom. Uh, you know, 250, 200 people sharing one latrine and no real water, food, uh, too few mattresses even. Uh, we're trying to do all we can as the Norwegian Refugee Council, but we're really, really overstretched in this ocean of needs. Jan Eglund, you know, finally the international community has started to airdrop some aid. But what we saw was that some of it <coughs> dropped into the sea. And the pictures are really ones of, you know, I mean, total just panic. People are scavenging, people are yes. fighting each other, people are trying to get the, yes. you know, plastic, I guess they're military rations. Can there be no better way of delivering aid, even in the midst of a war? There can be a much better way, really. And it's up to Israel, with the United States and Egypt, to fix it. Uh, of course, airdrops is something of a very last resort. You do that to besieged areas, as we did in Syria, when the Islamic State was, was, was besieging it and so on. Uh, Jordan is doing some airdrops. It's very costly. It's very limited, uh, and 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 very hard to do. The solution is to get the Rafah crossing and Kerem Shalom to work according to its purpose and according to its capacity. Mm -hmm. I could see many hundreds of trucks lined up at the Rafah crossing when I came today in Kerem Shalom. It's, it has been days with only a handful of, uh, of trucks, even though they have a much bigger capacity from the Israeli side. But there they let extremists, extremists block the aid to the children and women, the innocent on this side. You know, it's people who are saying, how can we send aid into the people who killed our women and children and kidnapped our people? So the politics is even playing out and the trauma on the border there. But I want to ask you how you react to, let's just say, Palestinians who talked to Reuters said about the airdrops, we came throwing ourselves toward death to get some flour. We can't find anything, have mercy on us. Another said, our life has become hell. And we know, because a CNN investigation found that Israel actually fired on a UN, UN convoy carrying food supplies earlier this month, February 5th. Yes, yes. And also say, I mean, <laughs> It's beyond belief that people who are mourning, of course, the worst massacre in the history of Israel on the 7th of October, would believe that taking away food from children and women, completely innocent, had nothing to do with the 7th of October, could can in any way help the poor hostages here. The Hamas militants have food and they are in tunnels. They have n nothing to do with, uh, with, with, with the people that we aid. The chaos, yes, around the aid line is becoming worse and worse because there's so little aid coming in. Today, I'm, I'm pretty shaken, actually, from what I saw. The minute we crossed the border from, uh, you know, orderly and sparsely populated Sinai, 
you, you see the eight trucks going full speed down the road, being chased by gangs of youth who jump the, Trump, uh, the trucks and before eyes loot mattresses, and blankets, food, etc., to the desperate people outside who want to get some aid. So, Jan, Jan let and, me ask you this. Was, yeah. Jan, is this yeah. anarchy? Is this stealing? Or is this an attempt to <clears throat> distribute this, you know, in, in as crazy a way as you described, to distribute this aid? I think it is actually self-service self by those strongest mm -hmm. who have received no aid and who have grandmothers, children, nephews who are starving. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, people are not looting each other. They loot what they see as an international community coming with far too little to them. So then they take what they can get. We have a special way of, 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 of going in with the NRC. We have had none of our trucks looted yet. And we do orderly uh, distributions with local organizations who have to use their open trucks in a situation of desperation. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the police, which was supposed to, to have some order in this was bombed repeatedly by Israel, the blue blue uniform police. So they are gone now. They are in civilian clothing, trying to shoot in the air. No, it's 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 really also wow. in some places. L let me ask you then, because you're in Rafa specifically. Uh, you've probably had some access towards Khan Yunus, but what a lot of people are very concerned about right now, including the residents who we can manage to hear from, are in the north. There, there, there's a picture that we're going to play. It's a mother who says there's no more milk in the enclave, or at least up there. So she's wrapping a date in a gauze and letting her baby boy suck on it as if to suck all the juice out of this yeah. date. We have heard that there are stories of young children saying that they would rather die. We've heard adults say they are going to, they're preparing to die. They think they will all die. Can you get to the north where we understand there is a famine rising there? What do you know about the north? Will you go to the north? I'm not able myself now to go to the north. NRC has eight aid workers in the north, and they are themselves starving. We got a little bit of food to our aid workers the other day, but the convoys have really been thoroughly looted from the desperation and lawlessness in this bombarded north. Uh, so there is very little aid. There is very little uh, supplies there to start with. So famine is breaking out there. There's no other way to just describe it, which again shows that the Kani crossing, which is also from Israel, the, Israel could fix this. They are the occupying power. They have the uh, overwhelming military superiority. They could have convoys going over Kani crossing, which is in the middle area from where you can easily reach the north. It's very hard from here south in Rafa and Karen Shalom area. Why do you think they are not? Why do you think a basic 
food and water and medicine supplies are not happening? Well, I, um, because of what is a misconception of military expediency, let's just smash the place and, and, and thereby reach very fast our military objective. They're not reaching, haven't reached their military objective after all of these months. Uh, so I, I hope that to see some sanity and humanity on the Israeli side. This is not the Israel I know from 40 years of cooperation, including through the Oslo Agreement, then there was always possibilities to reason and to get aid to, uh, to Palestinians uh, in need. Uh, I hope to see uh, days where this comes back. So, Jan England, you obviously have to have Israeli coordination, permission, whatever the word is, to get in, even from Rafa, even, even to talk and see what they need there. So what are you now saying to your Israeli interlocutors? I mean, do they understand the extent of the humanitarian catastrophe? Well, I, I wonder, of, of course, there is this dehumanization on, on both sides. So, so of course, in, on this side, people are naturally concerned with famine among children. Uh, on the Israeli side, it is the hostages that is the number one and only issue. Uh, so I'm looking to the United States to broker now a deal whereby there is an extended ceasefire for this war-exhausted population, a release of the hostages, release from prisoners also that are sitting in arbitrary detention on the other side, and then let's reboot and start to discuss a future with some hope for both Palestinians and Israelis, security for, for Israel, hope and justice for the Palestinians. It's really such a disaster. Listening to you is very, very disconcerting. Jan Eglin, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ukraine is also testing Western resolve now in the third year of Russia's invasion. Their defense minister says that half the Western arms deliveries failed to arrive on time. And now, after the retreat from Avdivka last week, Ukrainian forces have withdrawn from the nearby village, but say they are building up defenses along a new front line. 
Who can forget the massacre that sh showed the world the war's true face? It was in Bucha, the Kyiv suburb that revealed atrocities and alleged Russian war crimes that took place early on in the war. And I visited that, that town on the second anniversary of the invasion. And just a reminder, of course, what happened there is still incredibly disturbing. Father Andriy Halavin of St. Andrew's Church walks me through Bucha's grisly place in history. Hundreds were brutally killed here during Russia's month-long occupation, including women, children, the elderly. 99 years old. Oh my God, 1923 to yes. 2022. Yes. <gasps> 99 years old and a child of two years old. These people died not during the fighting, but during the occupation, says Father Andriy, when the Russian world came here. And this is its face. These are corpses. These are rape people. This is every apartment and house looted. This is the face of the Russian world. On this place, two trenches. Father Andriy became known after the Russians were pushed back for revealing the site of a mass grave just here on his church grounds, filled with 160 people. He shows me the original posting about it on Facebook, March 12, 2022, when Russian forces were still occupying Bucha. And from this memorial, you can see that red house. Most of the family was killed as they tried to flee, when the Russians turned a heavy machine gun on their car. It still haunts and horrifies the grandmother, Valentina Chekmarova. It's very hard for me to remember this. Two years have passed, and it seems like it happened today, she says. I saw them off to get out of this hell, but they didn't. They were shot. This is the fate they were trying to escape. The main street, Yablunska, in this residential Kyiv suburb, strewn with bodies, all clearly civilians. The discovery of basement torture and execution centers. People forced to kneel and lie with hands tied behind their backs. Women and girls raped. How could this happen? How could this happen? Standing in Yablunska Street today feels a little like standing in a graveyard. It's where the horrors of the Russian invasion were first exposed. And it remains a field of evidence, a memorial and a pilgrimage site. We believe that these are war crimes and this all would be recognized as a genocide by the world. President Zelensky came here April 4, 2022, right after his forces drove the Russians out. And he brings all his international visitors and world leaders to Bucha to remind the world just what they're fighting against. Moscow has claimed without evidence that this was all staged and was a planned media campaign. Ruslan Kravchenko was the war crimes prosecutor. He's now governor of the Kyiv region. It's a fake. Do you remember when the Russians said it was fake and the bodies were fake and that the Ukrainians had killed people themselves, he asked me? When we seized the phones, we proved to the whole world that it was the Russians who killed people, Ukrainians. Ruslan says the war crimes investigations continue, using a trove of evidence from multiple cameras, phones and other recordings. But when they inform the Russian soldiers they identify, they don't cooperate. And Father Andrei tells us the awful truth is that bodies are still being discovered today, two years on.
From time to time, we find someone by accident, he says. The Russians had hidden their bodies somewhere and we find them. So unfortunately, the number of people who died is increasing. My report from Butcher just as the two-year anniversary was passing this weekend. We turn now to the spooky hit TV show, True Detective Night Country, set in Alaska and starring Hollywood legend Jodie Foster and boxing champ turned actor Kaylee Reese. This fourth season is the highest rated of the whole anthology. Here's a clip from the trailer. I'm working on this new case. A missing scientist found on the edge of the villages. Frozen solid. What? It's been six years. Why are you here? Because you both know what really happened. I need my help. Both stars joined me here in London recently, just ahead of the show's recent grand finale, and here is our conversation. Jodie Foster, Kelly Reese, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. You have not been on television for a long, long time, <laughs> yeah. right? On TV. I mean, have you ever done a major in your adult life? TV. So what attracted you about True Detective in this particular series? Yeah, I don't think I've done a series since the mid-70s or something. Um, but I have been doing a little bit of directing on television. Yeah. So it's something I was familiar with. And I was just looking for the opportunity, the right opportunity, the right script, something that uh, moved me, really. You and know? what about this does? Because when you say moving, I mean, it is... It's horror genre, it's thrilling, it's in the dead of night. I mean, it's really heavy duty. Yeah, it's a full experience. Um, we're so proud of this. I mean, Issa Lopez, the director, just did such a magnificent job writing all the episodes and creating this world um, with the two true detectives that are female now. You know, we, we remember season one and, and Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, but there's something really extraordinary about the anthology and being able to say, we're gonna, we're gonna do something completely different. So since Jody brought up season one, you know, it was the dudes, it was the bros, it was, as, you know, I mean, it's good old male testosterone and, and, and getting it done. And, and it was really, I mean, it's also a little scary and, and spooky. Was it the female-led character of this one that attracted you to it? And it's your first major on screen, right? Yes, it's my first major on screen. It's my only my third acting job as well. So, I mean, it was the story, as Jody said, that Issa created. And just from the first page, I was captivated on these very complex characters, the place itself she created in Innis, Alaska. And then she incorporated the people of Alaska into the, 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 the creation stories, into the crimes, into every, every part of the story is around the people. And that's what really attracted me to this very, very intense story and to the character. And not just around the people, this is very much a, a, an indigenous Native American culture that Absolutely. we're all entering. You are part Cape Verdean, part Native American. Was that also an attractive, you know, calling point for you? Absolutely, because the representation or lack thereof that we have as indigenous people is just, you know, it's getting a lot better and I'm, we're just in such a great time. So when I had the, when it was presented to me, this character, Navarro, was in Nupiak and Dominican. She was part of two different worlds, part of the community that she was going to be policing. It was your case all those months. You didn't close it. You. Exactly. 
it was something that was so familiar to me because it's kind of the, that balance that you have to have. You don't feel enough for either. So it just attracted me to this very layered character. Jodie Foster, Kelly was a boxing champ. Yeah. And she said, though, that. Still is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and will maybe go back to boxing? I'm not retired yet. Okay. <laughs> um, and said that working with you was like training with Mike Tyson. Oh. Yes, without the biting. <laughs> yeah. You still got your ear. Yeah. Uh. No, she didn't bite any ears off. No, it was like, it was like training like Mike Tyson in like 86 in his prime. Like, do, like what better way to I mean, it must craft. be intimidating. This is one of the world's great, great actors Pounds. since the age of six years old. Multi-Oscar winning, multi-award winning director, all of that in our consciousness for all sorts of reasons for so many years. Was it intimidating? Absolutely. I was terrified. <laughs> <laughs> I was so terrified. But I was excited because I knew something terrified me like this. That means it was going to be, I was going to learn so much and what better hands to be in to learn from than somebody like this. So I was like, yeah. And, and Jody, <laughs> you know, you are obviously a mentor of, of sorts, I guess, for all the newcomers and younger actresses. But I'm really interested in reading, and I want you to explain to me that when Issa brought you this, you decided that you wanted your character uh Liz Danvers to be aged up well my age yes your age <laughs> yes but putting Navarro's story as the center yeah is that right yeah and I think Issa probably wanted that too but it was something that I I really wanted to remind us that we we were doing something that, that really ha isn't done very much just to have the central voice of the film be an indigenous voice uh, to be look through those eyes in a way, uh, not just because we're doing representation, but because we really want to be in that body and really understand it from that perspective. And so for do, to do that, I'm just here to support. So I kind of reverse engineered my character of Liz Danvers uh, to support Kaylee's character's journey. Yeah. That um, doesn't happen often. Well, you know, there's a funny thing that happens when you turn 60, I think, is um, at least for me, I feel like there's like some weird chemical that starts going off in your body and um, you just don't care. Uh, and part of that not caring is that you suddenly realize that um, it's so much more fun and more satisfying to recognize that it's not your time. It's someone else's time. And it's up to you to help support them and bring whatever experience and wisdom you have to that process and... Um, you get to be part of a team, which is amazing. It's so much better than doing everything on your own and being all nervous and anxious about yourself. And Kaylee, that is really generous in my, in my opinion. Um, what did you, you brought a lot of your own experience, I think, from what I read, to the character. You had an experience that was very negative with a police officer in Rhode Island, where you come from. And you know, you, you play a very vulnerable character in this. Jodie's character is much more hard-ass, right? Much more hard-bitten. Oh. Um, right? Yeah, she does yeah. some ass-kicking, though. Yeah, yeah so she, no, she, she does. She has a bad temper in the character. Oh, yeah, 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 I know. And you're pretty, you know, physically <laughs> intimidating as you're portrayed in that, in that film. But you have a very soft spot for the, 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 the central character who's the murdered woman. Annie, and also your own sister as she's played in, mental health issues. I mean, there's so much that comes into this horror detective flick. Yeah, there is. And, it, you know, the, the horror is, the real horror to this is that it's realistic. You know, we, we put a lot of, or Issa put a lot of realistic issues, especially that circle and gender, uh, around the indigenous community. One being uh, missing and murdered indigenous women and our people get targeted and they don't, we don't get mainstream attention on this and there isn't any answers. In isolated communities, um, especially indigenous communities, suicide rates are 
10 times worse. Um, women are 10 times more likely to face violent crimes in their lifetime. So these are the real, realistic issues that were really near and dear to my heart personally, and that I brought right into Navarro's character. She just has this craving for truth and justice for these women, and she does have a short fuse, rightly so. Um, so there was a lot of realism that, from my personal experience and the other experiences that I've heard from different families and different communities doing my research. And this police officer in Rhode Island who, what did he do? Did he beat you up? Did he get you in a, I can't remember exactly, but has he seen this? Has he? I hope so. <laughs> I really do. I hope so. You know, it's crazy. The things too, it's like, uh, that really messed me up because I didn't do anything wrong. I was at work. I was a security officer at a club and he came in and just asserted his authority the wrong way as they do. And he just started wailing on me for no reason. And I, this is my first night back. I had a really bad motorcycle accident months before. I was on light duty and he just went calling me all derogatory names and then threw me in the paddy wagon and then told me I had to apologize in order to get myself out. But what he didn't know is that there was a camera underneath uh, where the, everything happened. But I, I was confused. It was really, it was a dark time in my life and it really messed me up, um, especially when you think like police officers, they're supposed to be there to help and protect and serve. And, you know, I'm part of not a police officer, but I was security. Um, so to flip it on its head and kind of really have to face this actual thing, put the uniform on, it was, it was a uh, cathartic. I will say that, but I'm, I'm proud that I was able to do that. Like I've, I couldn't even hear sirens for a while. It was really bad. Wow. Yeah. And just talking about the scenery, I mean, uh, you say, obviously, it's set in Alaska, the night country, but you didn't film in Alaska, right? You filmed no. in Iceland. Yeah, we filmed in Iceland um, because we wouldn't be able to film in Alaska. It was too remote and you can't get, there are no roads in a lot of the places that we'd have to be. So we filmed in Iceland and we brought everybody from Alaska there. So that was fun. We had all That's these awesome. wonderful Alaskan actors um, and also Greenlandic actors who share the, a heritage. So some some of them, they sort of meet in the Arctic and and all the the, the native Inuit people sort of uh, connected with each other. So that was satisfying. And is, I mean, was it dark all the time? Obviously, <laughs> every scene we see is dark and it's, you know, if you've got sads or something, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit it's, difficult. It's dark most of the day. And when the sun is up and like the really heat or the darkness of the dark, it's only like dawn for like maybe three or four hours a day. Yeah. And it's just a very like a twilight. Um, but it's dark. It's, but it, I wasn't personally affected, but I could see how in being an isolated area like that for that long, dark all the time. How long the did, was the shoot? We were there for seven months. Seven oh, months. Lee. Yeah. yeah. In all dark days? Well, not all of us. Well, we got there. We got there in October. So yeah, it was September, more like October. fall and it wasn't, you know. So we got to experience the transition of it yeah. being like kind of normal to all yeah, dark. Yeah. And then when we left, it was going back. Backwards, actually. So the last major thriller detective that you played, obviously, was in Hannibal Lecter. Yes. And Silence, Reese, of Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Got an Oscar. How different was this? And do you like being that kind of... Well, I hadn't... I never played another police officer, sort of FBI investigator ever again, because I felt like Silence of the Lambs was such a unicorn. You know, it was such an extraordinary movie. And all things came and were aligned. It had this special thing. And I really haven't felt that feeling until this one. Um, I was saying that last night, you know, it's, this film was very easy to make because there's so much love and it's so, 
genuine and we were all crazy about each other and somehow everything just kind of fell into place. And I felt that about Silence of the Lambs too. Congratulations, because you're nominated again. Yes. In this case, Best Supporting Actress, yes. right? For Nyad. Yes. Tell me the story. Everybody should know it. Ah, well, it's the story of Diana Nyad, who is a swimmer, had been a marathon swimmer uh, for all her whole life and then came back at the age of 60, finally accomplishing her mission at 64, to swim from Cuba to Florida. Probably. And that's more than 100 miles. More than 100 miles, and no person else has ever done it without a shark tank. Yeah, it, it really is extraordinary. But, you know, going back to one of the things that I thought was incredibly moving about it is not only her determination and her success at that age, plus at any age, but Annette Benning and yourself, again, kind of aged up. I mean, you yeah. were not shy yeah. about yeah. the sun damage yeah. and the mask damage that she had. You know, yeah, the poor Annette. Oh, my yeah. gosh. I mean, that takes some courage also to Yeah, as I say, like I, was, I was best supporting abs because <laughs> I just, I never had to get in the water. I basically just stood on the boat and sucked in my stomach and my jogger bra, and that was pretty much all I had to do. And shouted her. And shouted her. But you know her. them, right? You know the yes. actual real Bonnie, the friend, and, yes. and, and Diana. Diana and Bonnie are good friends. I love them. That really was the reason why I did it. That and working with Annette. And um, I see them all the time, Bonnie and Diana. We, we play cards together and, you know, we watch tennis matches together. And um, I, I really love them. Is it still really exciting to get an award nomination, to do these films? Again, you've yeah. been doing it since you were, what, three? Six? Three. Yeah. Three? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Boggles the mind, right? You know, it's so cute. Um, yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> so cute. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think True Detective is probably one of the best experiences I've ever had. So, you know, you think like, oh, well, it's never going to get any better. But then you get to, you know, you get to 61 years old, True Detective. And uh, I do feel like we're this family and that we we did something that I'm just so proud of. And um, so it's surprising that it gets better and better. And just talking about a family, there's the whole taxi driver kind of cast oh, yeah. group that's all meeting at the Oscars, right? You've got, um, oh, yeah, well, I mean, right. I think Robert De Niro and, and, and Martin Scorsese and Killers of the Flower Moon. Yes. Is it, will it be nice to see them all again or do you see it, them regularly? It is. No, I don't see them regularly. But, you know, every time I see them, I'm like, wow, damn, we're old. <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> and I read that. By the time you did that film, I think you were... You, 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 I was 12 years old. You were 12, old. and you had more experience in film <laughs> yes. than either Martin Scorsese or Robert De Niro. Yes, I had, I had made more movies than either one of them at that point. But um, yes. it's, it is funny to see... I mean, of course, I have so much respect for Scorsese and De Niro and all of the movies that they've made. Um, but yeah, my reference for them is, is very different. You know, Martin Scorsese had a little funny mustache and he was really young and his mother was on set the whole time. And she was always on like- taxi driver. Yes, and she was tucking in his shirt all the time and she was like patting his butt. And not making sure you were okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I do have a, a different memory of that. Patting his butt, that's yeah. really good. And um, just because Killers of the Flower Moon is another amazingly timely film in terms of diversity and representation of indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Did you like the film? You know, there's mixed feelings mm -hmm. about the film. Um, they're, not, they're not anything negative. It's one of those things where um, you kind of have to take things in steps. I believe that I am so proud that they worked with the Osage Nation to tell the story from an authentic, from that experience, from that perspective, instead of going in, saying what they were gonna do and then doing what they wanted to do. It was so, I am so proud of Lily Gladstone and the entire indigenous yeah. cast and the entire uh, Osage Nation. She did a wonderful job. So didn't the whole cast. So I think having 
an ally like Martin Scorsese who took his platform and told this story and worked with them. It's an amazing opportunity just to continue to go forward. Um, I did enjoy um, the performances in it. I think that it can go um, and uh, keep going and uh, keep forward, being developed. Keep being developed in a better direction, uh, in a good direction that they're already yeah. going. So, no, oh, I was just going to say one of the things that we have going for us is that we have this thing called streaming yeah. and you're able to have limited series and it gives you an opportunity to explore something in a really deep way, sometimes a deeper way than you could ever do on film. And even though Scorsese was able to do a movie that lasted three and a half hours, quite long, right, to explore that whole story, there's so much more story yeah. there that wasn't that wasn't looked into that I would like to um, offer to him, please do a limited series for six hours. So that we can explore can the elaborate. whole story. Are you making of... us some news here? Some Hollywood news? <laughs> should, I, should I send him a yeah, note? Yeah, yeah. Like, or just, please just do a tell us, series. you know, that you'll direct it and he can produce oh, it. Oh, no, no, no. He should direct <laughs> Or he can act in it. Or he can act in it. Yeah. That, I mean, that's really interesting. Um, you are going to keep acting. Absolutely. And keep boxing. I'm not retired from boxing yet, but I, have... I like that diplomatic. Yeah. Yes, it's very diplomatic. Yes, um, I mean I've I've been boxing professionally for almost 16 years now, and I've six world titles, two different weight classes, and I've seen it evolve, and it's beautiful. And for, you know, if it wasn't for boxing, I probably wouldn't have been found. You know what I mean? So um, I I love boxing. I'll always be involved in it. Fighters never know when to quit, but I don't want to fight long at all. But maybe you know when to quit when you've got something. Yeah, as amazing as this to Absolutely. step into. Yeah, it's it's really nice to have it, you know, both right now. Like I said, I haven't fought since my last fight in 2021, and I'm not banging down the gym door. Um, but if the opportunity's there, um, but I'm going to continue acting. I love the storytelling, and it's um, I guess I'm okay at it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, okay. it's remarkable. I mean, Thank both you. your performances are remarkable. Thank yeah. you. And what next on the acting front for you? No idea. No? A no directing idea. front. No, I don't know yet. It's something I'm working on. So hopefully I'll be able to get that off the ground. I, I, I can offer you a platform to tell us. <laughs> there you go. But I did do two films back to back as an actor. Yeah. So I think I'd like yeah. to get a step behind the camera again. Okay. Yeah. Jodie Foster, Kaylee Reese, thank you so much indeed. Thank you. Two women packing a very powerful punch. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. President Joe Biden met with top congressional leaders today, pressing them to pass his aid package for Ukraine and Israel. The failure so far to do so is hurting Ukraine and undermining America on the global stage. Politico national security reporter Alexander Ward takes a look at how Biden's foreign policy team copes with all of these challenges in his new book, The Internationalists, The Fight to Preserve American Foreign Policy After Trump. And he joins Walter Isaacson to talk about the effort to repair America's global reputation. Thank you, Chris John and Alex Ward. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Your new book, The Internationalists, is a sort of a group biography of all the people doing Biden's foreign policy. But one of the focal points is Jake Sullivan, one of the smartest people in the Democratic foreign policy establishment in the past 15 years. And you start with him 
the night that Hillary Clinton, his patron, loses to Donald Trump and he figures out what the problem may have been. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, as you said, he was uh, he grew up sort of in the traditional Democratic foreign policy establishment. And he, he is next to Hillary Clinton as she's conceding to Trump. And what he's starting to figure out is, you know, Trump may not necessarily have won because of his foreign policy views, but he didn't lose because of them either. So what was it about what Trump was saying that was appealing to so many millions of Americans? So out of power, Jake and friends spend about four years, and I call it the wilderness, trying to figure out what it is that was really appealing to so many people and what could be brought in to a democratic foreign policy thinking uh, framework to update it for the 21st century. And they come up with a phrase we've heard a lot during the Biden administration, which is a foreign policy for the middle class. Their basic point is any foreign policy decision that is taken by the United States needs to be easily explained to the everyday American as to why it benefits them. And if that cannot be done, then that might not be a foreign policy uh, direction worth pursuing. Well, you say it's uh, a, a foreign policy geared to the middle class, and you use some examples like a little bit more trade restriction here or there, or help for an industrial policy. But uh, what does that really mean? Uh, that doesn't seem like that adds up to that much more when it comes to changing foreign policy. Not necessarily, but let's talk about the way they, they frame it. So let's take Ukraine. They make two general arguments. One is, the reason the U.S. needs to defend Ukraine is because if Russia is not stopped there, it will go into a NATO country eventually, and that will require the U.S. to come to that NATO nation's defense, meaning American sons and daughters will go to war, meaning a lot more money will be spent on that fight, meaning it will be an even costlier in terms of blood and treasure uh, endeavor than it is now. And then there's the second aspect of it, which is we are sending our old military equipment to Ukraine at this point for them to use against Russia, which means we need to develop newer more advanced weaponry to make our military stronger. And what that means is manufacturing jobs in Ohio, in Mississippi, in Michigan, in Texas, and Kansas. And so there is a real middle-class jobs benefit to this defense. That's why they don't necessarily want to send troops. They don't think that's worth it. They think that Ukraine is doing a well enough job with the older weaponry we have, but we can actually defend Ukraine and improve the, improve the middle-class economic position with the policy they're pursuing. But it seems that the Ukraine war has been, or our support for Ukraine, has been justified more by a support for democracy. And that seems a core to uh, what uh, Biden represents, uh, defending democracy wherever it seeks to flourish, as John Quincy Adams would say. Uh, how does that fit in? It doesn't, I mean, maybe you cast it as, okay, we make a few more weapons here in factories, uh, but it doesn't seem like it's the core of the new Bidenism you talk about. I think it is to an extent, but the way they frame it is, is, as you talked about, in democracy, nothing gets Joe Biden more animated than being seen as the protector of, of democracy worldwide. That is what he likes most, and that is what he believes appeals to the general public at this point, lest we forget in the 2020 election. Uh, one of the things he was arguing was Donald Trump is not a small D Democrat, that democracy was on the line. It's the same argument he's going to make in 2024. And he's tried to connect the fight for democracy worldwide with the fight for democracy at home. That You can't necessarily say you can be a strong democracy if you're not helping it flourish elsewhere in the world. So that is a big part of it. But sort of the second order arguments are Trump type arguments, these foreign policy for the middle class type arguments that would not have been made if it were not for the rethinking that they did and, and Trump's victory in 2016. The big news this week in terms of great uh, geopolitics is that Hungary has agreed now to let Sweden into NATO, 
We got Finland into NATO, now Sweden. That's a huge shift that over the past 50 years of foreign policy establishment, nobody would have dreamed of that expansion of NATO. How big of a deal is that? And is that just serendipitous or is that something that the Biden administration was pushing for? They were certainly pushing for it, although we have to say that this is the, you know, Finland and Sweden's own doing. They saw what Russia was up to in Ukraine and grant they had been aggressive in the in the Arctic region and North European region for a long time. And so they saw a moment to join NATO and it worked. You know, the public, their publics were on their side. Of course, Joe Biden, a big NATO fan, uh, liked you know the fact that uh, NATO would expand under his watch. And so this is why he says the line consistently uh, you know, that Putin was hoping for the Finlandization of NATO and instead he got the NATOization of Finland. So this is a, a big win for him and his strategy of trying to bring allies on board with everything the U.S. is doing. In their mind, you go a bit more slowly, but you go further with allies. And they would argue that, you know, say Russia had done this under Trump's watch. One, you would not have the staunch U.S. defense of Ukraine, most likely, but you wouldn't have allies come along as part of this Western wall uh, to to keep Russia at bay. Your book has a lot of great reporting nuggets. And one that struck me was General Mark Milley trying to convince Biden not to do the abrupt uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. Tell me about that discussion and about the fallout from the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, the way it was handled. Yes, Milley, along with a lot of other generals at the time, were adamant that the U.S. should keep some presence in Afghanistan. They were arguing roughly between 2,500 and 3,500 troops because they were worried that the Taliban would eventually storm to power. And Milley, who had you know, commanded in Afghanistan, has, has lost uh, you know, troops in Afghanistan, was telling Biden, look, if we leave, you know, women will be sent back to the Stone Age. You know, the education for women will, will falter. The, the dem democratic progress that had been made in that country will go away. But Biden was looking for a strategy from the Pentagon and others is if we if I am to commit more troops to Afghanistan, if I'm to continue this 20 year war, what does victory look like and how do we get there and what resources do does it require? And over four months of discussion, no one could convince President Biden that staying in the war would was a good idea, that a, that a victory could be achieved. And so he made the decision to withdraw. And of course, we saw the chaos that ensued. I should note that in that decision to withdraw baked in was an intelligence assessment that said it would take 18 to 24 months for the Taliban to take over the country. Of course, that was a rosy timeline, seeing as the Taliban would be in fully in power in August. So and don't, that's only a few, a few months from the decision in April. And we, of course, we saw 13 service members killed uh, during the evacuation. We saw a humanitarian strife outside the airport in Kabul. We saw the horrific scenes of people falling out of planes. And we saw Afghan allies of Americans left behind. But we also saw a pretty miraculous logistical feat to get 120,000 or so people out as Kabul and Afghanistan was crumbling. So on one hand, you have to hold that, yes, Afghanistan is worse off because of the decision to withdraw. And you also have to hold on the other side the logistical feat that it took to take, get as many people out during a tumultuous time and consider the strategic ramification. Would it make sense for the U.S. to be in a war that no one for, for which no one could articulate a, a vision of victory? Biden didn't see it. That's why we were up. Well, you said it was a great logistical feat to get everybody out. And yet, if you see the disorganization, and even you write about it as if it's a bit of a hubris to think it would have been easier, shouldn't people with this much knowledge and this much intelligence have uh, prepared more for the withdrawal? Well, this is one of my questions is, did no one in these meetings think that 18 to 24 months was a bit too rosy? 
a bit too positive an assessment. And what they said was not really. And of course, over time, as the Taliban was sweeping through the country, you know, that timeline shifted or you know, declined and, and, and shrunk. But the decision was made and the military was thinking, look, speed is safety. We got to get out as quickly as possible. So they were on a faster timeline than even the White House suggested. And the people of the State Department that were thinking, hey, we need to reform this program to bring the Afghan allies of Americans home. They didn't have the time or worry with all to do it because they were worried about the diplomats in Kabul and calling allies to get people out. So it was a miss. We cannot deny that. It was a miss that they really didn't prepare for the Taliban. And there was already public reporting, as I note in the book, there was already public reporting about what the Taliban was preparing to do and how quickly they could do it. And that, that there were questions about the Afghan military's ability to withstand that onslaught. So there, there are genuine questions to ask of the Biden administration of whether or not they, they miscalculated in thinking that it would not take so long, uh, or excuse me, that it would take a lot longer for the Taliban to do what they did. And I should note, you know, Biden to this day believes it was still the right decision to leave. He asked no one to resign. No one offered to resign. And if you'll ask them today, they still hold by those views. You write about how strong Biden was in coming to the support of Ukraine. And yet you also talk about an awkward relationship he had with President Zelensky. Explain how they had to balance that. We sort of already know that Biden Zelensky did not get along and see eye to eye in the run up to the invasion. But the book reveals that that relationship was really, really bad, screaming match bad. At certain points, Biden was basically telling Zelensky, why don't you believe the intelligence we're showing you and that we're showing our allies? The Russians are coming. You need to prepare. And recall that there were military assessments, one of many. But the stark one was that Kiev would fall within 72 hours. And throughout all these months of Biden and Zelensky chatting, Zelensky never believed that this was going to happen. He believed uh, that they would be that Putin would be too stupid to do that, that it made no sense, that the Ukrainians didn't have intelligence to show that. And you did have Biden saying, look, you got to start protecting your capital. You got to start protecting your country. In the end, Zelensky was able and his and his military and his team were able to defend Kiev and were able to defend many parts of Ukraine. And nothing sharpens the mind like seeing Russian tanks roll into your nation. But for many months, the Biden administration today would still probably tell you behind closed doors that sure, a lot of time was missed for preparation for Ukraine. Although critics would note this of the Biden administration. There are those who would say the U.S. should have sent weapons a lot sooner to Ukraine to prepare their military for a greater defense and perhaps sanction the Russians even before an attack. And this is actually one of the reasons why Zelensky wasn't so confident in the American assessment, because he would tell Biden, if you really believe this is happening, why aren't you, the U.S. and European allies, flooding my military with weapons? If you really believe an invasion is to come, I don't see you guys panicking as much as you should be. And what's the answer to that? Why weren't we? Because they, the feeling was they didn't want to give Putin necessarily a reason to escalate. Recall that during that period, the U.S. and the West were, were negotiating with the Russians in genuinely good faith. You know, Putin was putting out these arguments that it was because of NATO expansion and, you know, Europe, Ukraine tilting westward as the reasons for why he was considering doing this. Now, there are some ahistorical issues there that are a lot to get into. But the U.S. said, fine, if that's true, let's talk it through. Let's solve this at the table and not the battlefield. And so that was part of it, is that to then pump Ukraine full of weapons might have damaged that diplomatic process. Obviously, it didn't work. Putin still invaded and he did what he did. But that was the general bet, is that if, if, you, if you help Ukraine too soon, if you arm them too soon, then Putin's going to have no choice but to go in sooner. As we speak, uh, Israel, the United States, the Arab states 
are struggling in this notion of can we get a ceasefire in Gaza? And Israel seems to be resisting what has generally been the consensus pushed by the Biden administration. Has Biden's history, his sort of uh, history over the years in the Middle East, helped him here? Or is he somewhat handicapped when it comes to dealing with uh, the situation in Gaza and trying to get a ceasefire? I think it's helped him, but he's never really faced a situation like this. I mean, let's consider uh, Hamas's brutal attack on October 7th led the, effectively the entire nation of Israel to back a military campaign to root them out of Gaza. And Netanyahu, who is not a popular figure, is, is being supported in that campaign. And his far-right government wants to root Hamas out. And again, you've got the public behind him. So as much as Biden you know, knows Netanyahu, deals with him, the, the domestic context in Israel makes it a lot easier for Israel to rebuff American suasion. What the Biden administration would say here is, look, you know, we're doing our best to support Israel's right to self-defense and push the Israelis to allow as much support for the Palestinians as possible in this case. They're trying to have it both ways, but it's leading to a lot of messaging muddle. And at this point, it's very clear that they are struggling to get Israel to do exactly what they would like Israel to do. And so they're fine. They're trying to find new ways to get Netanyahu to to follow uh, an American playbook. The U.S., pretty much tried to focus on China and other things and to take a focus off of the Middle East at the beginning of the Biden administration. Jake Sullivan gave a speech right before the Hamas terrorist attack, saying that things have been quiet there and we could put it aside. In retrospect, do you believe and do you think they believe it may have been a mistake not to focus more on the Israel-Palestinian situation? I bet now they would say that, but even a few months before, they wouldn't have. We should note that one of the big criticisms of the Biden administration is that they significantly ignored the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and let that to fester during their time in office. Now, I should note that in the months before the October 7th attack, as the U.S. was working with Israel and Saudi Arabia to, to have a normalization of relations, a key component of that was to improve the Palestinian situation, give them a pathway to a state, allow more humanitarian aid in, give them a sense of belonging. And that was pushed pretty strongly by the U.S. And would, they would not accept, but they would not endorse a deal, a normalization deal without it. But for many, that was far little too late, that they should have been focusing on this issue from the beginning instead of letting that wound fester uh, for many years. And one of the criticisms of, of both, I should say, the Trump administration and the Biden administration is that they, they did this as a bank shot, right? The Trump administration didn't think about the Palestinian issue when they were doing the Abraham Accords. That was wholly ignored. And while the Biden administration continued the Abraham Accord push, they left the Palestinian issue for far too late and it was a side bit. And so they were, the criticism is their goal of, if we do normalization with Arab states, it would make it easier to help Palestinians. Well, that may have been true over time. Um, it's certainly not true after October 7th. And so that bank shot strategy did not work. You're just back from the Munich Security Conference a week ago. Tell me what the mood was like there, both on Ukraine and in uh, U.S. foreign policy in general. Amazingly gloomy. I mean, I expected, I didn't expect happiness, right? It's a tough period. And of course, the news of Alexei Navalny's death uh, occurred in the early days, uh, in, the, in the first few hours of that conference. But I, I was expecting, and many were expecting, there'd be some sort of plan to come out of there. And everyone from, from U.S. officials, you know, congressional leaders, European officials, other officials, they all left with kind of hands in the air going, no one knows what to do. That there was a sense that basically the plan, only plan A and the only plan is to get something through the House. 
And so I, the amount of European officials who ask me what a discharge petition is would astound you. Uh, that's how close they're paying attention. One thing I even heard, and this is from uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and also Senator Brian Schatz, both Democrats, they talked about a story Zelensky told them, which is of a Ukrainian soldier in the trenches on the front lines taking artillery fire, but scrolling on his phone for any signs that the package would pass the House. That's where we are. That's how gloomy the picture really is. And no one could necessarily articulate a way forward. And so if you're Team Biden, you're seeing one of your signature foreign policy uh, achievements, let's say, the defense of Ukraine, crumble before your eyes. Alex Ward, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And we heard much of the same in Ukraine. And finally tonight, a young woman from Staten Island, New York, flies past barriers and makes a place for herself in aviation history. Kamora Freeland is a 17-year-old pilot, and now she's one of the youngest black aviators in the United States. She just nailed her private license. Passing what she calls the biggest test of her life. Here's what Kamora told our affiliate WABC in New York. Definitely amazing. Like I'm a part of the change that's definitely needed. And um, yeah, like I want other little black girls to do the same. And Kamora flies off to Spelman College next in the fall. That is it for now. If you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast. Remember, you can always catch us online, on our website, and all over social media. Thank you for watching, and goodbye from London. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.